Hi, this is Donna with the American Social History Project podcast. American Social History Podcasts are a production of the American Social History Project Center for Media and Learning at the City University of New York Graduate Center. Today's episode features Kubi Ackerman, former director of the Future City Lab at the Museum of the City of New York. We invited Ackerman to the panel to discuss the lab's work to engage museum visitors in shaping the future of urban and cultural environments. Ackerman is not interested in memorials of the past, but instead asks how we might memorialize the present and the future, as well as send warnings or messages to future generations. Encompassing topics like socioeconomic inequality and the climate crisis, Ackerman's talk helps us challenge conventional notions of monuments and possibilities for the urban future. This talk was supported with funds from Humanities New York and the National Endowment for the Humanities. Good evening. It's great to be here. It's a real honor. Uh, and I'm going to start off my talk this evening just with a, a little bit of a confession that I um, haven't actually spent a lot of time over the course of my career thinking about monuments specifically, at least not until the um, activism around the Sims Monument, which is actually right in front of the Museum of the City of New York, where I work. The, the future, though, and how we think about it and how we plan for it uh, is something that I think about a lot. Um, and for that reason, what I'm going to be discussing tonight, in keeping with the with the other presentations, with the theme of the show, is not so much the the future of existing historical monuments, which I don't really feel qualified to address, but rather um, how we might think about memorialization and monument building in and for the future. Um, so I'm going to start off with just a, a quick uh, overview of the Future City Lab, where I work, um, which is an interactive and uh, participatory and somewhat experimental gallery on the future of New York City, which is part of a larger exhibition called New York at its Core, which covers the city's history as well. And as you can imagine, it's a bit of a challenge creating a permanent or semi-permanent exhibition on the future of a particular place, given that the future is inherently unknowable and unpredictable, and that you know any claim of any sort of curatorial expertise is, is necessarily suspect in, in a case like this, uh, especially given the poor track record of futurologists from the past, as evidence from images like this of what the year 2000 was supposed to look like made in the in the year 1900. And I think this actually exhibits another uh, thing that I want to talk about, which is that we're delusional in the sense we really suffer a lot from uh, what I call a sense of presentism, which is basically taking uh, you know, whatever the concerns and obsessions of the present are and extrapolating them out into the future and making confident-sounding prognostications about, about what that future is going to look like that are almost certain to be wrong. And I mean wrong not only in like in the sense that you know the pace of historical change and technological change is totally unpredictable, but wrong even in being unable to anticipate what future generations are going to value or what they might reject or even find uh, abhorrent. So uh, for that reason, we actually don't feature a lot of the types of imagery that you might expect to find in a place like the Future City Lab, namely you know, cool-looking renderings on the part of architects and planners of ecotopias or, or technotopias or dystopias, for that matter, for a couple different reasons. I mean, one is I think it can discourage truly radical thinking about possibilities for the future. And the other is I think it gives a kind of misplaced uh, confidence in the expertise of planners to figure things out for us, which I think in this age of, uh, you know, rising social, economic, and ecological instability is not something I would wager on. So instead, we focus on the big challenges that the city's facing, 
And we certainly provide a lot of uh, data and information on those challenges, kind of background. What you're seeing here is a map table where we show almost 100 maps over the course of 35 or 40 minutes. Uh, so there's a huge amount of information, but most of the components in the gallery um, are more participatory uh, and encourage, uh, like this one is our what if table that encourages kind of open-ended speculation and discussion about uh, potential scenarios for the future or um, we have a number of design games where you can design housing or design a waterfront park, design a streetscape in specific locations in New York City and through motion capture technology kind of see your, um, your image and your designs of the future. And the hope is here is that this uh, encourages a more engaged relationship to the future and, and reinforces the idea that change is really a collective enterprise and that the future is in no way predetermined but really uh, dependent on and contingent on the actions and decisions that we make in the present with regard to the big challenges that we're facing uh, today. So I find this, this modified uh, Voroshkon, which is a diagram that futurologists often use to think about scenarios for the future and what's possible, what's plausible to be very kind of a useful thing that we use to think about the future as well as to counteract the kind of presentism that I was talking about before. And I, I hope that we're prompting our visitors to consider their, you know, their past perspectives and, that, and how that influences their, uh, their ideas of the future and what some preferable future scenarios might be. So what does all this have to do with monuments? Um, as you might be thinking. So at the, at the risk of stating the obvious, monuments and memorials to past events, while framed as opportunities for commemoration, are often uh, intended more to send messages into the future, attempting to enforce through their long-term claims on uh, public space the values and stories of whoever has cultural power at that given moment onto future generations who might be tempted to uh, you know, deviate from official narratives or see things differently. Um, so contrary to the arguments made by apologists for racist memorials of the past, I would argue that monuments are not nor were ever merely relics of a past history, but were always intended to shape future understanding of past events. Uh, and in fact, the origin of the word monument is from the Latin monere, which means to warn or admonish. And what I'd like to highlight tonight are some projects that take that, liter that meaning fairly literally uh, and are, are explicitly future-oriented in that regard. Um, and increasingly, we're seeing things like contemporary analogs to things like the, the Hunger Stones, which I'm showing here, which were recently exposed on the Elbe River in the Czech Republic, very close to where I grew up, actually, um, cautioning future inhabitants of that region that when water levels get that low, that famine and instability are likely to follow. So these types of projects bring up the question of how we can approach the project of creating monuments for the future with the understanding that posterity might judge us fairly harshly for uh, our unwillingness to directly confront the threat and implicit violence in social instability and, and climate change in particular. And that's uh, really the best case scenario, like assuming the existence of a civilization capable of rendering such judgments in the future. The philosopher Roman Krzysztof has pointed out that our failure to value the lives of our descendants is akin to colonizing the future, essentially limiting the rights and the agency of future generations in determining the course of their lives. He writes that we treat the future as a distant colonial outpost where we dump ecological degradation, nuclear waste, public debt, and technological risk. Uh, so how are we to memorialize our recent past or current events in the light of this? What messages do we want to send into the future? And I think these are some interesting questions that monument builders and artists are grappling with uh, throughout the world. Um, so one provocative example certainly is from the self-described foresight practitioner named Stuart Candy, who along with colleagues in the University of Hawaii created this speculative uh, bird flu memorial in 2007 for a hypothetical outbreak in 2016. So that's nine years later. 
um, as a kind of provocation in Honolulu's Chinatown, which was accompanied by other speculative media on this event and was really meant to uh, spur public discussion on the history of exclusion and discrimination in Chinatown, as well as to, to you know, start a conversation about its current position as an immigrant enclave and how it might be able to avoid shocks and disruptions in the future. Uh, so this project is very much in the vein of trying to you know, create something in the present to have an impact on future events, although what that impact should be in this case I think was left deliberately open-ended. Um, somewhat less ambiguous in terms of intended outcomes are the many projects on climate change, such as this one, which is environmental artist Eve Mosher's work called High Water Line, in which she walked a number of uh, New York City neighborhoods tracing a line of chalk along the 10-foot elevation line, which is, I think, approximately the amount of sea level rise we're expected to get according to certain projections by the end of the century. And this is something she did in a number of other cities as well. And you can see here on the right that a, a critical component of the piece are the conversations among bystanders that this spurred. Uh, so in that, I think this work represents a couple of different trends. First of all, the, the kind of explicitly social and conversational piece of it is like critical to it, so not just the physical dimension, um, but also its uh, impermanence. And I guess you could argue that it's not really a monument in that sense, that part of what differentiates monuments from other types of public art are precisely their claims to longevity. But um, I think given in you know, light of what I'm saying, I'm, I'm not sure that that difference is, is that important. The question of permanence and longevity is, is recurrent in a lot of the discourse around the future of monuments. For example, in this competition that was co-hosted by the Van Allen Institute and the National Park Service uh, some years ago called Not Set in Stone, Memorials for the Future, whose calls for submission included uh, these criteria, among others, to engage the present and future as much as the past, to allow for changing narratives, uh, to consider ephemeral, mobile, and temporary forms, and to create memorials beyond physical space. So as you can see, these are qualities that might result in submissions unlikely to resemble traditional monuments, and indeed the finalists included ones like this one, which is a memorial to the immigrant experience, which would take the form of a variety of multimedia installations in and around um, bus lines in Washington, D.C. Uh, the winning entry, uh, however, looks a little bit more like a conventional a memorial, uh, but the designers explain that the project is a new form of memorialization that commemorates the aftermath of the present. Uh, it consists of a grove of cherry trees at the confluence of the uh, Potomac and Anacostia rivers in DC um, that are gradually flooded by rising seas with each successive row of trees killed off by the salt water but remaining as a kind of testament to past shorelines. And in case you're wondering how the Federal National Park Service came to sponsor this type of competition, I'll just remind you this was under the previous administration. Um, <clears throat> there's a lot of other climate change memorials out there, like this one in the Maldives, which is one of the island nations that stands to be completely wiped off the map by climate change. Uh, and this particular piece, it, along with the shoreline of this island, is increasingly accessible only to uh, like snorkelers and scuba divers, um, as well as this somewhat more subtle a library of water in Iceland, which displays columns of water from each of um, that nation's 24 major glaciers, all of which are rapidly receding, uh, and, and therefore acts as a kind of anticipatory memorial to these massive landscape features. Along those lines is the Monument to Ongoing Loss, is the Mass Extinction Memorial Observatory. Uh, designed by David Ajay, which is currently under construction in Dorset, England, uh, designed as a spiral structure built out of stone with one stone for each species driven to extinction by humans and therefore likely to be in a state of continual construction as the current estimates are that there are between uh, 200 and 2,000 species disappearing each year. 
Uh, so those are some examples of monuments and memorials for the future, but there are some even more striking questions raised by other physical messages to future generations, like the hunger stones that I showed earlier, uh, which may not fit the conventional definition of monuments, but insofar as they're you know, public, sculptural, uh, communicative objects that represent some sort of understanding of our place in history, I think they're worthy of consideration and a lot more public awareness and debate than they're currently getting. Uh, so one example is the debate around how to define and where to mark the onset of the Anthropocene, which is how some geologists are arguing we should define our current geologic era as one shaped indelibly by humans in a way that will have a discernible imprint in the geologic record for, uh, for eons to come. And by eons, I mean like millions of years, which is difficult for us to understand given that, you know, I think modern humans have only been around for 200,000 years or so. So the way the geologists define these eras is by placing a golden spike in specific locations around the globe where the transition between two eras is commonly agreed upon, kind of like a bookmark that can be continually referred to. Uh, so there's a lot of debate as to whether we should define our period as the Anthropocene, and if so, where and between which strata to place this golden spike, with the criterion be that the boundary represents um, a physical change that can be measured throughout the world. So candidates include the onset of the Industrial Revolution, which saw a worldwide increase in carbon emissions, which is traceable, or the beginning of nuclear weapons testing, which similarly can be measured by a thin layer of radioactive material deposited worldwide. Um, but the more, one of the more compelling proposals, since it was just actually covered in the Times today, is that it be placed to correspond to the arrival of European explorers to the Americas to commemorate, in a sense, that the effects of the subsequent genocide um, disease and mass enslavement of African peoples led to mass depopulation and the reforestation of formerly farmed land, which uh, led to a decrease in atmospheric CO2 emissions and the onset of the Little Ice Age. So it's actually traceable in the geologic record. Uh, as one of the authors of the papers advocating for the Columbian Exchange is the beginning of the Anthropocene writes, uh, placing the Anthropocene at this time highlights the idea that colonialism, global trade, and the desire for wealth and profits began driving Earth toward a new state. And where we end up, end up placing this spike, I think, is a pretty interesting question. Similar but distinct questions arise from projects to use monumental sculpture or architecture to send critically important, like, life or death messages into the distant futures in, like, tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of years. And I'm thinking here of the attempts to warn future inhabitants of Earth of the dangers of stored radioactive waste, which, which we have to warn them about, like, in time periods far beyond the reach of cultural memory, given that, for example, like Stonehenge, which is only like 5,000 years old, the meaning of that is fairly elusive to us now. So how, how do we do this? How do we create physical structures with discernible universal meaning far into the future beyond the reach of cultural memory? So some of the proposals include like fast slabs that absorb heat in the desert, making these areas extremely inhospitable or uninviting forests of concrete thorns. And these are some of the, the tamer proposals that I've seen. Uh, and finally, uh, there are a number of projects whose theme is time itself, which aim to have us expand our otherwise narrow temporal blinders to consider the long term from a more kind of existential perspective. So these include things like Tree Mountain, which is a monumental participatory sculpture in Finland in which the artist Agnes Denish invited the public and collaborators from around the world to plant trees in a mathematical pattern on land which is legally protected for 400 years and each participant gets a certificate to basically take care of the tree for 20 generations or the 10,000-year clock described as a monument to long-term thinking being constructed at great expense in a West Texas mountainside uh, with hands charting each year, decade, century, and millennium, et cetera. And my personal favorite, which admittedly isn't really a monument at all, but is, prompts us to expand our sense of time, is John Cage's composition, As Slow As Possible, which is a music piece currently being played by a mechanical organ at a church in Halberstadt, Germany, which the performance of the piece started in 2001. The first chord change was in 2005, and is scheduled to end in 2640. So, so mark your calendars. Um, 
so uh, as you've seen, much of the work I presented is ambiguous in its intention and meaning. So are these projects intended as a warning, as an admonition to change our ways, as an elegy, a kind of preemptive commemoration of that which is about to be lost, or as a mea culpa, signaling to the future that some of us at least recognize what was happening is, even as we failed to stop it? Uh, is it even possible to anticipate how these works will be received in the future, or should we acknowledge that our only audience is in the present? Uh, how we grapple with these questions is a critical art uh, uh, project, I think, for artists and scholars and monument builders, and all of us, and uh, frankly, and I think is intimately related to how we think of ourselves and our role in history and our collective future. Thank you.